Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willett. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and, like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Capo Verde formerly known as Cape Verde. And we are joined by Ambassador Jorge Tolentino, former foreign minister of Capo Verde from 2014 to 2016. Nicole, can you give us the highlights of U.S. policy towards Cabo Verde? The United States has had ties to the Capo Verde Islands as far back as 1818 when it established a consulate there, the first in sub-Saharan Africa. This was in part because Capo Verdeans worked in New England on whaling ships transiting the Atlantic Ocean. Following the country's independence in 1975 from Portugal, the United States established full diplomatic relations. The U.S. ambassador was resident in Guinea-Bissau. The ruling party, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, PAIGC, which had led the independence struggle, governed both Guinea-Bissau and Capo Verde. However, Bissau Guineans resented the party's political leadership was dominated by Capo Verdeans, and a coup by Nino Vieira in Bissau precipitated a final rupture in 1980. Capo Verde's leaders formed their own party, the African Party for the Independence of Cape Verde, PAICV. Possibly because of these dynamics, the United States finally established a separate mission to Capo Verde in 1983. One of its main functions, then and now, has been consular services. The population of Capo Verde Americans residing in the United States, chiefly in New England, is almost equal to the population of Capo Verde itself. Some are fifth, sixth, and maybe even seventh generation Cabo Verdean Americans. This, as one ambassador recalled, has been, quote, a principal reason why we have an embassy in Praia. There were also strategic reasons for this relationship. The Capo Verde Islands astride the primary sea lanes between Europe, West Africa, and the Indian Ocean. It makes it ideal for resupplying, refueling, or monitoring approaches to the Mediterranean and Central Atlantic Ocean. In fact, Cabo Verde once served as an emergency landing site for NASA space missions. In the late 1970s and early 80s, the United States was concerned about the USSR's effort to use the islands to support its military presence in Africa. Cabo Verde's ruling party was Marxist in its outlook and had close ties to the Soviets and Cubans dating back to the liberation struggle. That said, the country's first president, Aristide Piera, was determined to preserve his country's non-aligned status. While he accepted Soviet trainers and advisors, he turned down the USSR's request to use the island's airfield for military aircraft and reconnaissance flights. He did, however, allow the Cubans to shuttle military personnel back and forth from Angola and other countries. Piera, at this same time, maintained ties to the United States. Vice President George H.W. Bush visited in 1982, and President Reagan hosted Piera in the Oval Office in 1983. In a declassified CIA assessment before the visit, analysts judged that Piera wanted Washington to increase its economic assistance and planned to talk of his role in facilitating Angolan-South African talks in Cabo Verde. In the mid to late 1980s, Cabo Verde's relation with the United States and former colonial power Portugal continued to warm, seeking assistance and investments to address its economic woes. 
its leadership started to tone down its Marxist rhetoric, making pragmatic decisions about the economy and private enterprise. The United States also pressed for democratic reforms, and Cabo Verde held multi-party elections in 1991, resulting in the defeat of Piera and the PAICV. This ushered in regular alternation of power between PAICV and its rival, the Movement for Democracy, MPD. These elections and other reforms have made Cabo Verde one of the few, quote, free countries in sub-Saharan Africa, according to Freedom House. They've also resulted in disproportionate attention for the country with about 600,000 people. Vice President Quayle and Secretaries of State Powell and Clinton lauded the country's democratic credentials during visits to the island, its primary location for refueling the Air Force Two and Secretary's plane, probably was a factor in the stopover too. In 2013, President Obama hosted then-Prime Minister Neves along with three other African leaders at the White House. Its strategic location, however, has caused Capo Verde some headaches too. Its leaders continue to try to manage geopolitical competition as best they can. At a CSIS event in 2018, current Prime Minister Jose Carrera y Silva said, quote, we have a very clear orientation. Our favorite security partner is the United States. In terms of economic relations, it is the European Union. In terms of economic development, our favorite partner is China. But the country has also become entangled in spats that it can't control. When Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro's fixer, Alex Saab, was detained in Cabo Verde in June 2020 on his way to Iran, the country found itself defending legal challenges from Saab's high-priced lawyers and becoming a target of fake news attacks, including being erroneously labeled as a narco-state. In late 2020, the United States deployed a Navy cruiser on a month-long mission to patrol the area to fend off a Venezuelan or Iranian attempt to rescue Saab. Early in the Biden administration, Secretary Blinken called his Cabo Verdean counterpart to discuss the country's status as a model of democratic governance and human rights. The secretary also congratulated Cabo Verde for its selection for the U.S. National Guard State Partnership Program. Jeff, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure? Well, having just returned from a trip to Praia, the capital, maybe I was just influenced by what I saw, but I think that the U.S. investment in Cabo Verde recently announced at almost half a billion dollars, including $400 million just for a new embassy, was an incredible statement of the U.S. commitment to this country. We were told on our trip that Portuguese television in Europe was covering the new U.S. Embassy. So I think that that's a great example of a success. So Ambassador, what do you think the Biden administration strategy towards Cabo Verde should be? If I may bring a bit of perspective to the question you just put, what should the Biden administration strategy toward Cape Verde be? You know, in 1818, when the United States established on Cabo Verde, then a Portuguese colony, its first general consulate in the sub-Saharan Africa, there were three main objectives to, to achieve. One was to protect and promote the American trade interest in the region. Two, extend assistance to the American traders and sailors, and at that time there were so many in Cabo Verde. And three, to oversee violations to the Slave Importation Prohibition Act, which was enacted in 1808. 
eight. This set of uh, objectives, they mean that the archipelago of Cabo Verde was elected to play a role as an uh, outpost or an advanced platform of the United States in the context of the global trade in the Atlantic in the 19th century. Those were strategic reasonings at that time, and rightly so, I believe. 200 plus years later, Cap Verde still holds the same strategic value. The challenge nowadays are different, but the need to work together is much stronger. The Atlantic is one of the most challenging platforms of the organized transnational criminality, and Cap Verde is right in the crossroads. The importance of the Cap Verde's strategic locations needs not to be underscored, I believe. So, there are two points I'd like to underscore. One, it is important not to downplay the potential of insecurity that exists in the West African region, the Sahel region, and in the Atlantic Corridor. Secondly, the dynamics in Cabo Verde should not be seen disconnected from those in that whole region. That being said, I believe a good strategy from the American part, US, in this 21st century, would be empowering Cabo Verde as a beacon of peace and stability in the West African region and indeed in the whole Atlantic corridor. That strategic option would have concrete developments, namely in terms of training, in terms of capacity building, but I believe that would be the right bet to do right now in this actual context uh, when it comes to global challenges that are facing Cape Verde, that are facing the West African region, and that are facing the international community at large. Nicole, having listened to the ambassador's important intervention, how do we make this happen within the interagency? So for the interagency, that really means coalescing around the fact that this is a transnational, multinational question about how to strengthen that relationship and why it's so important. Bringing in West Africanists, those who are focused on transnational crime development experts, of course, really keeping a focus on articulating what is the strategic goal at all times and how do we work together to meet that. We know in diplomacy that having close relationships between nations, but also between civil society, is something that's really important if we're going to be able to work together when, you know, things really hit the fan. And when they do in the Atlantic, we really know that we need to be able to turn to Cabo Verde and have a real serious conversation and one that's ready to go in those moments. And in order to do that, it's going to be really important to continue that. And so I think what we're seeing from the half a billion dollar investment and the sort of major new focus on having a large, I would think, embassy at, at that price tag is to create the convening space, not just for government to government conversations, but also hopefully for regional 
events, for international events. It's a place where people want to go. It's a place where it's fairly practical to travel to. And we can really bring together a lot of those conversations that need to happen, bringing both attention to Cabo Verde as a tourist site, as a place where we can do important diplomacy, and as a place where the interagency can focus to combine a lot of different strategic priorities into one place. Ambassador, can you share with us just one big idea, something that is going to take the bilateral relationship to the next level? The United States should help Cabo Verde redesign this whole defense and national security sector. We have been working with the same model since the 1975, since the national independence. It's about time for Cabo Verde to try a, a fresh start. Namely, I have in mind a, a new organization that would be a coast guard with aerial and maritime means, obviously a, a small coast guard, but entirely professional and highly efficient, namely when it comes to countering the narco-traffic, but for that, we definitely need the, the assistance, the help, and the opening of the U.S. in terms of being with us, let's say, in this moment of daring to, to hope and to build a new, a new solution in terms of organization of the, of the national security and defense sector. Ambassador, I think that's such a persuasive argument. Uh, too often, <laughs> in, no, but too often in U.S. policy, we only do a redesign or work with our partners while they're enmeshed in crisis, right? So you can think about rebuilding the Liberian army after the Civil War. And what you're suggesting is let's not do it from a place of crisis. Let's do it from a place of recognizing the challenges have evolved and uh, perhaps the infrastructure has gone a little stale. And I would just add to your point that as the prime minister said at CSIS, we, the U.S. is already the key security partner. And now there's this new partnership with a National Guard. We are in a position to do these things. So I think it's a bold, uh, but perhaps a realistic recommendation. So to finish our episode, sir, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the Cabo Verdean American community that lives in the United States. What would be interesting to hear from you is the cultural exchange. You know, how have you observed the diaspora and those back at home in the islands? How, what kind of exchange is going on? How has that enriched both countries? You know, the, the Cape Verdean communities abroad, they, they have always been culturally rich and active. They kept alive the defining traits of their culture, namely the language, the Creole, the music and the dances, and of course, the food. Let's take one example. Horace Silver, Horace Tavar Silver, he was silver before becoming silver, is an American musician and a paramount figure of jazz but he was strongly enough attached to the land of his forefathers to have written his The Cape Verdean Blues and Song for My Father. The same goes for another jazz musician, Paul Gonçalves, or for the R&B group 
Tavares or Tavares brothers. I say this to say that the the cultural exchanges are one of the main trends of Cape Verde relationship with its diaspora. There is no clear cut between those being cultural creators on the islands and those being cultural creators in the diaspora, in the US or elsewhere. Ambassador, you've convinced me that I'm not listening to enough Cabo Verdean music, so you've given me some homework for this episode. (laughs) You have to. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.